Hi, I'm Sunny Dean. And I'm Scott Drakeford. And this is the Publishing Radio Podcast. In 2022, we both launched debut novels in the same genre with the same publisher in the same year. But despite having very similar starts, our books, and subsequently each of our careers, went in very different directions. That pattern repeats itself throughout the industry over and over. Why do some books succeed while others seem to be dead on arrival? In this podcast, we aim to answer those questions and many more, along with how to build and maintain an author career. Everyone signing a contract deserves to know what they're really signing up for. In an industry that loves its secrets, we'll be sharing real details from real people. We'll cover the gamut of life as a Big Five published author, from agents to publishing contracts, finances, and more. Go for it, Scott. <laughs> oh, it's me. Oh, shit. Um, okay. I could do the intro if you like. <laughs> yes, do it. Do it. <laughs> no, no. I don't know. Go. Uh, uh, so I, I will let you introduce yourself, but I'll just give the, I guess, little intro spiel. So welcome to the Publishing Rodeo podcast, where we try our very best to tell the truth all the time, unless it's funny not to. Today, we have... Uh, Miles Cameron, who also is known by the name Christian Cameron, and I maybe we need to cut this out, but Christian's your real name, right? It it definitely is. Okay, and and Miles is the name that you have taken for your science fiction and fantasy. Uh, that is correct. Yes, it was actually kind of assigned to me. I was told to have a different name, which I believe <laughs> is like the worst marketing decision ever made, but. I could just roll off on my views on how publishers think speculative fiction and historical fiction are so very different. Anyway, that's for another I, day. I no, I don't know if it is for another day because that's actually on my list of questions. I I do want to hear about you know why you chose, and it sounds like you didn't so much choose as you were voluntold. You know why you chose to publish under different names. Whether you think it's a good idea, whether you'd do it again. So yeah, let let's hear about it. And if you could just give us a spiel on your career in both the science fiction and fantasy world and in uh, the historical world. We'd love to hear it all. And then we'll launch from there with questions. Well, I'll try and make this fast. I've written, I think I've published 47 and written 50, something like that books. I started out in thrillers uh, with hundred thousand dollar advances. As I am a former clandestine operations officer in the real world, uh, that was considered super sexy and I got good contracts. And I wrote my first eight books with my dad. Our first book, which was not a bestseller, but it really sold well, called Night Trap. And it was about father and son spies. And it was written by a father and son. You can see the marketing angle here. And it did very nicely. And dad was also an intelligence officer. So we kind of knew what we were talking about. And we wrote a somewhat harsh, zero-sum game-ish spy novel with Jets. And it was fun. Um, and then we wrote seven more. And uh, they paid us for them. And those were great. And then that all came to an end because after 9-11, everyone knew that Jack Ryan was not going to save the world and in fact had not. And the thriller business, I won't say it tanked, but it changed and I wasn't really interested in it. I was out of the military by then and I kind of didn't believe what I was writing. I thought I was never going to write again. And uh, I went off thinking I'd be a classics teacher and I already knew some Latin. And I thought I'd learn classical Greek. And in the middle of learning classical Greek, I came up with an idea for a novel which was called Tyrant and completely reinvented my writing career. And let me say that the Tyrant advances were one-eighth 
of the thriller advances. And there was like lesson one about uh, genre. Thriller is a big money genre. Historical fiction is not a big money genre. However, we sold some copies and that was fine. And I had a career again. So I uh, never ended up as a high school classics teacher. And instead, I wrote historical novels for a while. And one day, I was in the Orion offices in London and an editor who is now my editor and who I think is fantastic named Gillian Redfern popped in and said, Bill, Bill Massey was my editor at the time. Bill says, you actually read fantasy. And I'm like, yeah, I don't read historical fiction at all. I only read fantasy. And she said, have you ever thought of writing a fantasy novel? And I'm like, I dreamed of writing a fantasy novel. I wrote a really bad one when I was in high school, which you will never see. And so since then, I've also been a speculative fiction writer and that I don't know, that was 2010, 2011, something like that. Fantasy pays much better than historical fiction, both in advances and in royalties, and has a wider audience and deeper community. But we anyway, I could I could riff on that for a while. Uh, the name thing is what got us onto this question, because it's not really all about me. It's really about publishing. The world has changed very significantly since 2010, if you guys haven't noticed, and not just in the publishing industry. But the publishing industry is antediluvian in its, many of its belief systems are Dickensian or maybe even pre-Dickensian. And one of them is that historical fiction, and I'm just going to say this right out, is something that responsible literati might actually do. Whereas fantasy, science fiction are genres with a, a sort of curl of the lip when you say that. Yes. So of course, of course, you want a pen name if you're a responsible literate author, you you need a pen name when you're writing fantasy because you wouldn't want anyone to know what was really you. At least <laughs> that's how it was basically put to me. I think that might be really unfair. And I hope Jill Redfern is not now either laughing her ass off or pointing a finger at the screen, but that's how it seemed. So I, um, I picked a pen name that I found hilarious because miles means knight in medieval latin and if you don't know it i dress up as a knight on weekend and weekends and fight in armor so i just thought it was funny like it's like calling myself sir christian as a pen name and we were off to the races and now i have a pen name and now i have to do a lot of my advertising twice and i have to have multiple social media accounts and i, I just can't begin to tell you what a great idea it is but it's way too late now because red knight was modestly successful and after that i sort of had a persona as miles cameron and if I dumped that now, literally, because I have run into this, people at cons would go, you're who? You're, no, I've never read any Christian Cameron. Like, I... Okay, well, I mean, yeah, I, I, I took a pseudonym. So Drakeford is, is a pseudonymous name just because my real name, Scott Smith, is extremely generic, very difficult to tell apart from all of the other Scott Smiths on shelves and in the world. And so, yeah, I, I was very curious about that because I hope to branch into other genres, maybe including historical. We'll see. Yeah, it, it's difficult to know whether to keep the same name, go back to my real name. We'll see how that goes. I would, I mean, for, for if you want my two cents worth of advice, I would have one name and I would, because I believe that the only way authors can make it these days is by having effective social media representation. And you do not want to confuse the readers with multiple so, social media approaches. There it is. Yeah. That's my. Yeah. For every name you've got, I've been told by other people, you know, you effectively need a whole new account. And maybe the the one kind of place, like the, there was one author, I think, in, in Bookends, which is my literary agency at the moment. You know, there's one author there that I think Jessica used to rep who wrote 
picture books and erotica. And for that author, she did take a pen name <laughs> just so that parents didn't order in the wrong books by mistake. But I think for most of us, <laughs> that's not an issue. That's quite an extreme genre jump. <laughs> we'll let Shailen know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I uh, claim that I can write anything, but that that is a separated uh, two well separated genres that's that's very interesting <laughs> no really so since, since this is a publishing industry show i want to say that one of the things that continually amuses me is it, like genre shelving is what i call it when people will say yes but you're a fantasy writer yeah but i wrote a science fiction novel last year yes but all right, uh, you're a historical fiction writer. Well, I started out in thrillers, like, I, or I could write horror or comedy or whatever. I'm a writer, what, you know, like, and if I feel the urge, I'll write that thing. And then you will tell me that I shouldn't have done that because I should be on the shelf over here. Anyway, it's a, it's a funny world. No worries. So, I mean, a lot of people don't survive in this industry very long. Like publishing, especially nowadays, is, is kind of notorious for having fairly short careers and just the fact that you've kind of endured 25 years is amazing to me and I've heard you talk a little bit about a lot of the different things that you do to kind of keep your hand in the game and keep going and I wondered if you had like I guess general thoughts on that on the different hats that you've worn as an author I mean you've talked about knowing Midlist I this is something I asked Pete McLean do you do you remember when the first time you heard that word uh, I heard it from my dad over the dinner table when I was nine years old. Oh, like Midlist is, <laughs> is a world I've lived in all my life. And, you know, I look at really great writers like Patrick Rothfuss and I think like, how is that good or bad? I mean, the, the money part I'm sure is good. I'm actually leaving that aside. How hard would it be to really just like bang one book? Now you're somebody all over the world. Now, where do you go? And uh, anyway, that, that's not really the question you're asking, but I had a completely different career, which is I've had a sort of steady, moderate success. And then pretty recently, and I mean, like maybe since the dawn of COVID, I've gone up, I guess, somewhat significantly. It certainly feels different, but that represents 23 years of kind of always the same, which is living from advance to advance and not finding it funny when people made the classic joke, what's the one thing required to be a professional speculative fiction writer, a spouse with a job that, uh, <laughs> see, that's not that funny, is it? Um, well, uh, it is the, it is the truth in my case. <laughs> and it was the truth in my case. And my wife had yeah. to support me for several years. And I have to say, completely patting myself on the back that very briefly I got to support her, which like felt really good. But yeah, uh, the surviving for 25 years, I, I'm going to go back to, I started out as a thriller writer making large advances. Uh, didn't get a large advance on the first book, by the way, but after the first book sold, the money rolled. And I'm going to go back to that and say, so that gave me a completely fake idea of how the publishing industry and the world work. And my dad had survived as a midlist author and never gotten advances like that because he wrote sort of, you know, good, decent literature and got small amounts of money and, and occasional royalties. And then, you know, we, we wrote some modestly successful thrillers and then the thriller business collapsed. And instead of doing something smart, like thinking, all right, I'll move to another genre, I just threw in the towel and moved on. So it was pure luck that I discovered another genre. But but I, I will say that what I learned from that is, oh, 
I can move to another genre if a genre collapses. And um, I, I think that it's worth saying that demographics have changed even within within any, any genre you can name, that people read differently now, that there are different platforms like audiobooks and ebooks. I'm going to sound like an old man here, but I'm just going to say it right out. It's a business. I mean, we may be artists. I don't know. That's like a whole other podcast. But it's a business. So it's your job to stay up to date on, it's our job to stay up to date on how our business works. And that means that if readership is changing, if what readers want is changing, if we, and sorry, and this is a very difficult subject for me to discuss because uh, Scott, before that we started, I was talking about my dad. My dad Mm -hmm. believed, and I believe that you should only write a book you want to write and it should be a book you want to read and it should not be any attempt to keep up with someone else's fashion or fad ever. Yep. And I, yep. I, I really believe that. Yet, I paradoxically, I also believe that I am responsible for knowing what's going on in the readership world and not attempting to single-handedly buck a trend. Okay, so I, I don't want to go too far down that road and say, you know, I would never write X or I always attempt to follow the crowd. But as the crowd changes, it's worth knowing what it is they want to read. And that to me is part of the system. And then I'll also say, as I think I I said this at the top, it is my perception. And I think I could find some numbers to back it up, that some genres are more financially remunerative than other genres. A writer getting into that should know what they're getting into. In historical fiction, I hope I am writing a novel right now that will break me out of what I call sword and sandals, books men read, and into books everyone will read. Now, I'd like to say that I think every piece of historical fiction I've ever written is for everyone to read. My very first historical novel has a major heroic trans character, and that was way back in 2007. And that's because I was really interested in multi-gendered shaman in Siberia in the third millennium BC. Like that, that, that seemed really cool to me. Anyway, uh, I, I say all that to say, like, it's not all about following something. It is about writing what you want to write, but it's worthwhile being aware of what's out there. And yeah. You know, I am aware that more women than men now read historical fiction, that Philippa Gregory outsells Bernard Cornwell. And while I don't think that my books are like Bernard Cornwell's, I would really like women to read my books. I actually really would. I like women and I'm very interested (laughs) in No, but I mean, I'm very interested in women in history and the role of women in history. And like, I wish somebody would write a book that I want to read called a military history of women, then someday somebody will write that book because I've got like 200 file cards of interesting women, women's stories in military history. Anyway, that's probably not the question Sunyi asked, but I'm, I'm just trying to get at, I'm just trying to get at being aware of demographic changes and writing to them is part of my way of staying available as a mid-list author. I'm not just trying to tell one story over and over again. I'm not saying that anybody else is trying to do that, but uh, I do look over fantasy, and I'll just talk about fantasy for a moment, from time to time with a slightly jaundiced eye and say uh, two things that I think are worth saying. One is some of this seems awfully the same as some of the books I saw come out last year. And and then another thing is, and, and this, it's not amusing. It's really weird. Uh, like how quickly, how quickly the world forgets books from before. Like C.J. Sherry, who is one of my favorite authors of all time. She wrote a bunch of... Uh, she no, changed no. her name too. 
I feel like her books are virtually forgotten by mainstream audiences. Tanith Lee, I can name a lot of people who wrote really great speculative fiction. And when I talk to young people at cons, they've never heard of any of these books. And I sort of roll my eyes and say, hmm. I guess somebody could write a new Gates of Ibriel because no one would notice that that book had already. Tamsley is still remembered in the UK. <laughs> well, that's very good here. to that, that that's very good to know. Although I think I was at British Fantasy Con when I mentioned her oh, <laughs> when somebody when somebody said that there were basically no famous female fantasy authors from the oh, before God. times. And I, I just started listing. Anyway, let's not go there. Um, <laughs> I yeah. yeah. I mean, going so going back to your point about writing what you care about and what you know you're you're interested in at any given time, but also keeping up with trends. I mean, that's a pretty classic intersection of finding what somebody will pay you for and what you enjoy doing. Uh, I'm gonna butcher the the this word but it's thrown around in the corporate world a lot. Ikigai? Ikigai? I don't know. A, a Japanese word that basically just means the intersection of doing things that you love, that the world needs, that you could be paid for, and that you're good at. And so, I mean, it's it's certainly not a, a new thing, and I don't think it... Uh, I don't at least consider it selling out to do both of those things. Oh, um, I, I actually think that that's a negotiation, but I'm not sure that all writers feel like they're earned for that negotiation. So what yeah. I mean by that is uh, I know some other writers, so I will not name names, but other writers I know are like, no, I have one really good idea. That's my idea. Whereas my yeah. view is I have like four ideas a day. So I'm going to smorgasbord them to my agent and say, like, how about this? How about this? And my agent's going to talk to an editor or two. And eventually somebody will come back and say, yeah, we'd like to buy that one. I hope. That being said, though, since 2016, when I found a great historical story about the founding of opera and how opera was originally sort of samizdat and an attack on the papacy and really complicated, interesting spy novel stuff, um, with a lot of very interesting women involved and the foundations of modern feminism, I'm like, this is a great book. And various people said, no, we don't want to buy it. And last year I finally sold it because I just kept basically tying the ribbon slightly differently until finally an editor said, Angela Tarabati, the founding, the, the, the woman who invented the word patriarchy, of course I want to see her as a character in a novel. I'm like, well, that only took five years, you know, um, I'm not being funny. You got to tell me when that comes out because my partner is a massive music nerd and listens to opera. So yeah. oh, well, he loves historical you, fiction. I'm terrified of your partner because I am not musical, and I am writing about the birth of opera. So that's all right. I'm You're a not little. I'm a little afraid. I, I I have sort of enlisted a minor opera star to like keep me real. But anyway, sorry. Uh, I'm very excited by this book because I think I've got a great idea, but I thought it was a great idea in 2017 and, you know, it's taken a long time to sell. What I'm trying to say, Scott and Sunyi, is that it is a negotiation. It yes. can't always just be your idea. Something I talk about with my editor a lot because I, I purposely try and write cross-genre um, firstly, because it interests me, and secondly, because that is where you get readership, where you have mainstream and, and fantasy kind of together. And we had loads of discussions over the past year about what that line is and, and where you draw in world building and the fact that essentially in fantasy, the more world building you have, the more you start to gradually lock out mainstream readers and and like balancing that against the story you want to tell and the emotional resonance you want to have. And it's, it is a whole discussion, um, and it's not as clear cut as just doing whatever you want or doing what a 
publisher tells you. But although I think it's that discussion is often painted in those terms. Um, and there, there was a really great line someone told me from Absolute Right, which is to, to write what's in your heart, but with your practical hat on. And that has always worked for me. As a kind that of sounds exactly right. So I have a couple more questions about your, you know, your long career. So just looking at your, uh, you know, your, your, the books you've written on Goodreads and wherever else, it looks like you've primarily stayed with uh, the same publishers. So you, you obviously have a different publisher for your historical than you do for your speculative, but it seems like you've stayed with, is it Orion on the one side and Orbit on the other? I, I looked uh, a few days ago, but what has gone into your decision to stay with those same publishers and how have you managed those relationships over time? Gallant's, um, Gallant's and uh, Orion. I, 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 yeah, I thought of leaving them a couple of times. It's a little like cell phone service. You know, the loyalty service comes on the line and says, well, we'll give you a free iPhone 13 and we'll also reduce your fee. And you're like, oh, okay. Now we're talking. I have a wonderful agent. She is very smart. We have heart to heart conversations. I, I swear every five years, like clockwork, the wheels fall off. I don't want to work for these guys anymore. Or my favorite editor lifetime has retired or moved on or has decided to become a contract editor. And then usually after I throw a hissy fit that only my agent hears, and I, I assume that she provides a much more civilized conversation, uh, somebody will come back to me and say, well, actually, we'll buy your medieval series. And then I'm like, oh, well, all right, I guess I'm still with Ryan. <laughs> Also, I do, I, I don't want to sound completely self-centered. I kind of like them both and they have stood by me. I have had, uh, it's funny because this is becoming less true. I've had a couple of books that were complete flops, but oddly now I'm selling my backlist. So they're unflopping kind of late in life, <laughs> seven years after publication. Um, but I've had some losers and, uh, you know, it must be a truism on this show that you're only as good as the sales of your last book. That's like all you have when you're a mid-list author. So when the sales on your end and they, the speed with which the publishing industry will forget the book that did sell 80,000 copies is stunning. So, and also sometimes their sales figures are wrong, but that's like a whole other story. But having a publisher who basically says, nope, you're reliable, you deliver on time and you write well, we will probably continue to buy your books till you die, is of more value than slightly more money from a devil I don't know. Absolutely. <laughs> yep. And also, like, this is, I'm jumping topics, but I think this is still Go Im for it. important. And, yeah. you know, it's weird, but my strategies and tactics are those of a person with 40 plus books. And I admit that there aren't a ton, but I think they'd work for people with five books, but I don't think they'd work for people with one book. But I'm sort of in a boat now where my backlist is so long that I don't live on advances anymore. I actually yeah. have royalties. And that changes your tactics. It changes the whole way you look at how you sell a book. If you're confident that a book over the next two, three years will like earn out and pay royalties... And if you already have income from other books, I used to live from advance to advance. That was all I had. And then if they earned out, that was great. And it, all that did was sort of give me another card to play. It's very different when you can count on a living wage from yeah. your backlist so that you literally start to strategize differently and say, yes. hey, if I write another book in this old series, I'll 
sell more in the backlist because people will buy everything in that series. And then that will, and, and it changes your tactics in negotiation. And to be honest, every book you have with a publisher reinforces in the modern day of audible books and eBooks, which are forever because they're going to be available online forever. If you jump, you're, you're not ditching your backlist, but you're changing your relationship with your backlist. And that's going to cost you money. I'm being super blunt here. Like I, I, no, I, no, that's I, fine. I, I, love it. I could talk about personal relationships and stuff like this, but this is a job and I need yes. to pay my share of the mortgage um, so that yeah. my wife doesn't frown at me. So like, uh, this is, this is real life. And part of that real life is I have a huge backlist with both Orion and Galantz and we're all making money. So we're all nice to each other. Yeah, no, that totally I, makes sense. Yeah, complete. I mean, I remember having this experience, in one of my local writing groups, this is years ago before I got picked up where I was talking about selling short stories and stuff like that. And, and one of the people there at that meeting said, but why do you want to sell things anyway? Uh, I'm just happy writing stories. And I was thinking, well, that's completely fine. But I mean, for me, I want to, I, I want to sell things because I don't really have a lot of backup options and I have a lot of people that depend on me making income. So I always feel like writing just for joy. No one else is a little bit of a luxury. At least that's how I regard it. I hope people don't you know, feel offended by that. No, absolutely. It is, it is very much, you know, you're thinking about business and you think it does change everything as well as, you know, you're, when you're saying that about royalties and I was thinking how these past few years I've been thinking about advanced installments and wasn't factoring royalties in it at all. And when I started getting royalties for book eaters, that, that completely changes my financial planning for like the next three years. It's, it's insane. I remember the first year, it was not that long ago, when royalties weren't something that would cause me and Sarah to go out to dinner in a good restaurant because that pretty much ate the whole royalty. That was like, you know, wow, 280 pounds. That's awesome. And then one day it wasn't 280 pounds. And that was like a big difference. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to somebody last year and I want to say it was Mark Lawrence, but I and I hope I'm not wrong. Somebody, I, I, I was at Bristol Con and it was lovely. And somebody was saying like, I missed the moment where I transitioned from low mid list to, you know, to making it or something like that. And it's true. It's, it's incredibly incremental. You're, you're like, uh, making it, making it, making it. Oh, wow. I, I, I almost have more money than I can spend, which actually is a complete lie, but huh. an unanticipatedly large amount of money, which I can easily spend. He does really well. It could it could well have been Mark Lawrence because he's a another sort of steady income, never hit a list, but does really well. And his publishers are probably very happy with him, kind of author Mark Lawrence. I mean, I, I think he outsells me about ten to one. But I love yes. his stuff, and I had I had never met him before BristolCon last year, and he just seemed lovely. I just mm. I'll be honest, there was a lot of alcohol and a lot of good writers, and the two of them went together very well. But I cannot remember what each person said to me. <laughs> so uh, I mean, you you've mentioned that it felt very incremental to get from you know in uh, insignificant advance or i'm sorry insignificant royalty amounts to the point where that money started playing a real role in your life was there anything whether it was an action on your part an action on your publisher's part or world events uh that kind of made that happen or was it really just a matter of persistence and finding an audience over time and selling backlist 
I, I think it's a little bit of a number of things, and uh, and I could be dead wrong about all of them because you never really know why suddenly a book sells. I'll I'll take a a shot. First of all, my dad used to say every book you write is a every book you publish is a lottery ticket. So I could just have hit the winning numbers. Yeah. I think there is an element of luck to publishing, and I if publishing disagreed with me, then they would have a formula which they don't for picking who's going to make it. So I wrote a science fiction novel at the very beginning of COVID called Artifact Space, and it sold almost as well as Red Knight, which is my up till then best selling speculative fiction book. I maybe I don't think I was born to be a science fiction writer. I'd never written science fiction before, but some nice people wrote really nice cover quotes for me, mostly because I chased them like a uh, creature from beyond the grave, but they did. And I did a social media thing that I'm happy to talk about that was fairly carefully planned and COVID happened. And I, my, my observation of COVID is that lots and lots of people sat home and read. Uh, I've been told that I do well on Audible and I think that's because I write a lot of dialogue. And so that's good for voice actors and gives voice actors something to seize on. But again, I'm going by word of mouth here because nobody does surveys on this sort of thing. But my impression is that during COVID, a lot of people made use of Audible. And I do well on Audible. And then all of a sudden, a lot of my backlist sold more, I think. I think that's what happened. Like, again, my understanding from people in publishing is that as COVID supposedly or actually wrapped up, depending on your medical point of view, book sales went down. Mine didn't go down. I'm crossing my fingers, which you can't see if you're just listening to this <laughs> in the podcast. But um, maybe they're going down right now while I'm talking because I really don't know about sales until I receive my very, very hard to read printouts every six months. Oh, my God. Why are they so hard to read? I had to get and my because, whole Discord to help me. <laughs> because... Sunny, they're hard to read because um, the whole system was designed by elves in 1831. Uh, <laughs> and I can remember once, it was a long time ago, but they were trying to explain to me why I hadn't been paid 180 days after a payment was due and I was starving. I was going to like lose my credit cards. And a very nice patient person explained to me that the checks were cut by a bank in Scotland because that's how they'd always done it. But that bank had had some sort of problem with its computers, and so they just weren't issuing checks. And I'm like, okay, elves, you know, like elves moving very slowly in carriages with horses. Oh, there's like a metaphor for the whole industry in there somewhere. But yeah, you mentioned the social media marketing thing, and I think this is probably be a good time I'd like to ask you about it because one of the big questions we do get asked by people who discover often when their debuts that they have been, they've landed on the mid list, that's their first encounter of it is is launching is that that's when they first kind of figure out the the lead divide. And a lot of folks want to know what they can do to actually help their book, however, that looks like you know and your social media system sounds really interesting so feel free to explain it if, if you want i'm happy to explain it and then i'll tell you why it would be much harder to implement today but it's still worth trying so uh, i'm, I'm going to start with a philosophical comment which you've both already heard which is that my dad who was a very good writer um absolutely declined to do social media because he believed almost morally that it was the work not the artist that mattered and that nobody needed to know who he was. They only needed to read his books. And I was brought up listening to this and I, I, I bought into it for a while. 
And to make a long story short, one day I looked around and realized that that was a great way to have no one ever read any of my books because the world had changed fundamentally. I'm going to go the opposite way from my dad, and I'm sorry to say this, but I would say you need to create a persona that is interesting to people, and then you need to live it. And you need to deal with it every day. And oh, by the way, you need to enter into your writing community and have friends who are writers because nobody really wants to hear about you. They want to hear about you if you want to interact with Scott or Sun Yi, but they don't really need to know about you. So a, a, a really wrong way to go about it, in my humble opinion, is to put up your book cover and talk about how important you are because very quickly, no one will be listening. And... And at the other end of the spectrum, sometimes you have to talk about you and how important you are, or no one will know that your book exists. And striking a balance between those two things while doing a performance of being an author and being an interesting person is how to win the social media game. So in my case, I am a better than competent historical martial artist. And so I have started a Twitter and Instagram thing called Writing Fighting, which is completely genuine. I do want to help writers understand how to write a fight scene and how martial arts really works and how weapons of the past really work. I do. I'm not actually doing it just as a promo. And I guess weirdly and somewhat dichotomously, that is part of what my advice is, is you can't be making it up. Like if you're going to advertise lifestyle, the lifestyle has to be something you actually enjoy because, oh my goodness, social media is a giant waste of time and takes a ton of time to produce. So you better, <laughs> you better enjoy it. Like, I love swords. We're not on video, so you can't see all the swords on the I, wall sorry, behind me. I can me. see them. They look good. But, um, <laughs> they're all real, and I own 40. And in fact, 40. Shameless, promo, shameless promo for my book. I'm about to make a set of videos about Bronze Age swords. I'm now holding up a Bronze Age sword, for those of you who can't mm -hmm. see. And this is a bronze sword. And it's a meticulous recreation of a Type G Mycenaean uh, Bronze Age sword. And I won't waste a lot of time about that, except that for the Mobius advertising campaign for Storming Heaven, my new book, I'm going to make a minute long video about what bronze swords aren't, which is to say brittle, soft, easy to break. They're really great. As swords go, they're nifty and I will cut up some squash and stab things and possibly even stab through some armor and demonstrate that bronze swords are real. And that will probably sell some books. But what will sell more books is that I have 200 episodes of writing fighting behind me. So I already have a persona as a person who creates videos about ancient martial arts. And having said all that, I'm sometimes annoyed to find this is off topic, but it'll get back to the topic that people think I just write war novels because I constantly talk about martial arts. I just don't happen to be an expert on dance or cooking, but I'm completely fascinated by ancient dance and cooking. And I always include dance and cooking in my novels and a bunch of other things that I think are essential to build world building. I'm just not good enough at it to make really interesting videos on how to cook with only medieval cookware over a fire, even though I do that all the time, to be honest. It's just not as interesting as sword. But I can imagine a different person seizing on medieval cookery as a thing to build a whole mm -hmm. persona about. And I can imagine a different person um, seizing on Indian dance, Bollywood. I can think of a zillion things, fishing, that done well would make great social media content as long as you really actually do like it. And also it plays some role in your books. I think that that's a path. And then I, I have a very direct system, which I call 90-60-30. Um, so publishers, in my humble opinion, 
and my publisher, me, now either yell at me or writhe in agony. Um, publishers <laughs> believe that, that your book is important for about seven days. Um, yeah. between, let's say, the, the day before launch to the end of the week that the blog tour, if there's even a blog tour, lasts. <laughs> Whereas, was that too blunt? No, nope, I could nope. put that in a nicer way. So oh, I, no, believe, it's not very blunt. <laughs> uh, I, I believe that my book is, is uh, important for 90 days. And um, that doesn't mean every day of those 90 days because, because I believe in my social media system, I also make room for advertising and retweeting other people's books. So it can't be all about me. I've got to also support Peter. You mentioned Peter, and I think his books are great. I have no problem going like, Priest of Bones, everyone should read that. That is a book that everybody in the speculative fiction community should enjoy. Tasha Suri, this is a, an author who everybody should read. I have no problem supporting other authors. There's lots of great authors out there. But my 90-30-60-30 system is 90 days out, I'm going to advertise, maybe cover launch, that's my ideal. And pretty much warn readers that this is coming and try and build pre-sales because pre-sales matter enormously to publishers, especially looking when you're a mid-list author looking to get another contract. 60 days out, I'm going to press it harder. 30 days out, I'm going to start a little mini campaign with some character sketches by fans or I, I, I could think of a zillion ways to do it, but three, three to five days. And I'm doing that right now for a storming heaven. If anybody pays any attention to my social media, I I'm putting up original bronze age artifacts that directly affected my book or little miniatures that I've painted of people who are in my book because sorry, it's part of my creative system. Yeah, that's great. Ideas. And I'm putting those up every day and uh, inviting people to see what the historical parallels are or aren't because it is purely fantasy. It is not historical fantasy. I'll do that for five days and then I'll leave it alone. And then I'll do the seven day thing, you know, starting a couple of days before. But 90, 60, 30 means that some number of thousands of people, and I'm not going to exaggerate this. Let's say it's 3,000 because I think that's accurate have seen and heard of the book and had an opportunity to pre-sale before the book comes out. And that system, which is, it's almost tame because it, it's, uh, it's not very audacious. It's just kind of straightforward, has definitely visibly helped sales. Okay. And, and I do it all myself. That is not done by my publisher. I have, I won't say zero. I have very little expectation of the support of my publisher. Or put another way, I have roughly 7,000 Twitter followers, roughly 7,000 Facebook followers, and roughly 3,000 Instagram followers. So this is not a huge following. However, I can get more likes than Galantz can get on almost anything. I can get more likes than Mobius can get on almost anything. And that means I can generate more sales. And then the other thing that I do, so I have a, an author account on, or a business account on uh, Facebook. And I don't really like Facebook. And to be honest, I don't use Facebook. I don't go on Facebook as a person and say anything unless I'm talking to other reenactors. It's my only reason for using Facebook. I On my Facebook author account, where I have about 7,000 followers, I will pay to advertise only to my own followers because I'm just telling them my new book is out. That's it. They, they are all people who have, of their own free will, followed a business account called Christian Cameron Author. So... I feel absolutely, no, I'm, I, I'm, no, okay, I'm, yeah. I'm being very direct here. My wife is an, a professional, I wouldn't call her a marketing professional. She's a circulation professional in magazines, and she has taught me an enormous amount about focused advertising. Okay. So she taught me that, for instance, somebody with 80,000 followers on Instagram 
who does a book talk or on TikTok, on TikTok, who is not focused on speculative fiction, but instead sort of does a different kind of book every day, puts your book up and gets 37 likes. And of those 37 likes, you will be lucky if you sold one book. A group of 15 fantasy readers in Dallas, Texas, who have a book club, who invite you to talk to them for 15 minutes about your book, odds are you just sold 15 books. Worst case, you sold five. Which of those is the real advertising opportunity? And my wife taught me to look at it this way. You think the person with 100,000 followers is the person who can get you a bestseller. And I think Sarah would argue that what you really wanted to do was talk to 100 fantasy book clubs because... Yes. That's what will sell your book. So I, I don't actually dream big dreams. I look at selling 10,000 copies. If I can sell 10,000 copies, we all made money. We all moved on. You know, someday I'll maybe sell 100,000 copies of something and then I'll live a completely different life and have a Netflix series. But uh, <laughs> until then, um, I live by making sure that books sell 10,000 copies. Um, that is extremely incremental. But uh, anyway, that's my system. My system no, no, is that's great. pedestrian. But it's it's better system than than you know. No one is out there kind of teaching authors how to fend for yourself. I mean, you you know, you literally get a book deal and you just kind of have to figure it out. You're lucky if you get told anything. I think for a lot of people, and I, I feel like I'm lucky because I get told a fair amount by my publisher, and that's the the relationship that we have. Does I was going to ask if you actually had a figure in mind. You don't have to share if you if you don't want to. But what what is a good presale number to you? And and the reason why I ask that is I've had a few debut authors approach me privately and 850. say, "Eight oh, okay. Oh wow, eight hundred and fifty. That was eight hundred and fifty is noticeable. Okay, you sell a thousand pre-sales in historical fiction, you're probably the top historical fiction person in your, like, not Philippa Gregory. She probably sells 80,000 pre-sales, but I'm not competing with Philippa Gregory. It, it's weird because I was about to say I'm competing with Ben Cain, but I'm not because I'm pretty sure anybody who reads Ben Cain reads me and vice versa. Also, I like him and he likes me. And this is also something I would say to every author in case everyone else on your show hasn't said this. If you're an author, you have no competitors. Everybody who reads book like books like yours is a potential reader of your books. It doesn't work the other way. You're not against anyone. Yeah. And Sun Yi selling a bunch of books does not hurt me ever. Sun Yi having me on her show after she sells a bunch of books helps me. No, I, I'm, I, I'm yeah. serious. I, I don't understand why some authors have the like, you know, we, we have to be hunting cats living on the Serengeti in separate prides. Community matters. Helping other people sell their books will only help you sell your books. That is also part of my social media system, although I will admit I only help people whose books I like. That is a weird three-edged mm. sword because because there are people I really like and I didn't necessarily like their books. And there are books that actually, uh, I can only think of one and I will not tell you what it is. And it was not speculative fiction, but uh, I got an ARC once that appalled me, like morally. And I'm like, uh, never talk to me again. <laughs> but outside of that, I am happy to help. And I, you know, I never review because as far as I'm concerned, it's five stars or nothing. So I'll, if I love your book, I'm there. And if I did anything but love it, I'm just going to be quiet. One of the, one of the things that uh, constantly I have to relearn, I am not like everybody else. So I can love a book and other people will go, oh, I hated that. Or I can go like, eh, didn't even want to finish it. And people will go, that was the best fantasy novel of last year. And I also realized, I sorry, I just read this 
This is called Dead Silence. Really good. Uh, sort of sci-fi, sort of horror, sort of detective fiction. I thought it was fantastic. The point I'm trying to make here is I was playing a great sci-fi role-playing game that was also kind of horror and kind of adventure and kind of detective fiction. So I was literally in the mood. And now I wonder how many three-star reviews are generated by people being made to read a book they weren't in the mood for. I was in the mood for this book. It perfectly suited my mood. As far as I'm concerned, one of the best books I've read this year. If I had read it when I was in a let's do ancient Egypt mood, I would probably have not finished it. Anyway, I'm way off my topic. But, no, no, you're um, completely fine, honestly. Um, <laughs> and oh, and yeah. so I... The whole the whole thing about reading ARCs sometimes makes me roll my eyes because I'm I, I want to say like, but I'm not in the mood for this kind of fiction right now. So you can't make me read it. And that and that means that somebody can get my latest novel in the mail and go, Oh God, Miles Cameron, too much dialogue. Not now, Miles. You know, like <laughs> No, yeah, it's too late for me. I started out writing reviews. So when I started getting published, I had to go and delete like some reviews I'd written <laughs> as a reviewer that I really couldn't leave up anymore. I was just wondering about the pre-sales because I had some debut authors had messaged me and I think they were stressed about it. But for us, pre-sales tend to be very low because nobody knows who we are. Uh, and I don't know what that figure really should be other than agents have told me as many as you can get is good. Yeah. <laughs> you? Uh, let, let me spin that back to you in a very practical way. Take your advance, work out what the publisher's cut on each book at pre-sale is, work out what it would take to pay off all or half of your advance from the pre-sale. There's your pre-sale numbers. So that means good is you paid half your advance off and excellent is you paid off your advance. Because I I struggle with that. Because <laughs> well, let me ask you this then, Miles. Do you know do you know roughly what publisher margins on uh, any given format are? No. I mean okay. I'm sure Shelley knows my agent. Uh, I and like I could probably work it out just by yeah. staring at a contract. I used to know yeah. these things better. I just well, assume I, I just assume I, I ask that we know they're fifty percent. Yeah, we, we know what the authors take per unit are in different formats sure. generally, right? But yeah, to uh I just wondered because uh you know your your comment made it sound like maybe there was some math we could do to work backward to what the uh publishers okay. take was on any given unit. And I I, 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 I would agree with you. I think fifty percent is probably close. Thirty to fifty. I think it's 50% on hardcovers. I think it's 30% on paperbacks because they have almost all the paper cost with none of the high price. And then yeah. like, I assume they're making money like you wouldn't believe on eBooks because they have no overhead. Um, right now, somebody at Kindle is screaming, we have overhead, but it's not it's not the same overhead. And uh, audiobooks, I think just mint money, but they have to pay voice actors. And uh, I know some voice actors, they're being paid. so. You, you have to work out all of those things because I know, and this is why I don't get as far in the weeds as I used to, is that with four or five different media platforms taking your book, audiobooks, ebooks, hardcover, trade paper, uh, mass market paper, uh, they have a different profit margin on all of those. And here's my slag for the publishing industry. I'm not sure they know it because um, that agree would require that. Yeah. getting the elves out of the basement and finding out. <laughs> Finding no. somebody who speaks Elvish. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> who the fuck? What? The <laughs> I definitely yeah. did not get my pre-sale. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I've talked about this before in the podcast, but basically per book, 
my my advance was 100k for that contract and we kind of revert I, I had I had a really weird royalty statement because it was like the bit that went to my agent and we reverse engineered it in discord and we think that I earned out that first book by December but it was not in pre-sales mostly but it's very different with with books that come out in hardback because like my ebook sales are very low comparatively and hmm. both publishers told me that they push the hardback and they they just like like they jack up the price of the ebook to try and push hardback sales and you don't get very many sales until paperback comes out and then they drop the ebook price by a lot so my ebook sales are not anything to write home about no, i'm not complaining though because the hardback sales give me a lot better royalties so your advance is 10 times my normal advance and, and that, well no i mean like uh, sorry and i am completely content with that because i make a living and have made a living for a long time but, I was extremely lucky. Yeah. Well, no, I, I, I mean, <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure you weren't just lucky. If you sold through a hundred thousand pound advance, you weren't just lucky. That is beyond luck. And yep. um, well, not you, pounds, you, dollars, but yeah, <laughs> but, <laughs> a lot less. But, but still, I, I, yeah. I, I would, I would go so far as to say, and I'm sure I'll make somebody an enemy. Getting a hundred thousand dollar advance might be luck. Paying it off is never luck. That means you're a good writer. Um, which yeah. I already thought anyway, but uh, wow, do I sound patronizing? Pardon me. <laughs> no, it's all fine. I'm, all I'm trying to say is, all I'm trying to say is, um, uh, you know, good lottery ticket. My dad would say, like, well done. You're you're yes. you're, you're you're in. Uh, those uh, those of us who are just mere midlist authors, we get ten thousand dollars. Well, ten thousand pounds. Then it's way more important to sell eight hundred and fifty books, as right. opposed to I can't even imagine how many books you'd have to pre-sell to get at your hundred thousand dollar advance and i'd love somebody to give me a hundred thousand dollar advance so i could have a go at pre-selling what would i need i'm going to say i'd need sixteen thousand copies i i think i worked 9, it 000, out 9. because basically i got fifty dollars in royalties which means that my sales were just about <laughs> okay um i can't we'd have to go through it again what we'll do a royalties episode sometime when i have proper royalties is that but... is that across multiple countries so that was for my USA side. My UK side was a separate deal. Cool. Okay. <laughs> Don't yeah. hate me. I'm sorry. No, no, I, no, no. I, 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 you, you can hate me right back. I was in Greece this year on vacation, already having felt that the vacation was paid for. As mysteriously, out of nowhere, I got an Italian right sale, French right sale, and a German right sale. Like it was like for one week, it was like every day somebody was just giving me another five thousand nice. dollars for books already written. This is a great thing. So yeah, I mean, no, I'm. I, I mean, based I, on I, your story, maybe we'll find in ten years the bottom falls out the fantasy market and all those advances dry up and have to change genres. So. Well, but you can write, so you will like. Well, I, I, sorry. Again, I sound I sound patronizing, and I don't mean to. I just mean no, to say fine. Like, I'm, I'm just easily embarrassed. <laughs> uh, I think the trick is writing consistently over 120,000 words, and once you can do that, you know, I, I mean, I don't really want to write romance, although I actually enjoy reading some romance, and I don't I, I don't think anybody wants to read my erotica. But outside of those genres, I'm pretty sure I could hit virtually anything. You know, okay. you want. 125,000 words of 19th century fly fishing. Sure. You know, if that's what you want, what's the advance going to be? I, I'm a writer. Um, and I also love learning about things. And this is part of my method. And so it's probably fits into my social media. I'm not kidding when I do a video on 
a sword technique that I've just learned because I'm learning about Bronze Age weapons, about which, frankly, I knew nothing before two years ago. I'm not kidding. I'm not making it up either. I've done meticulous research, and now I'm going to bring it to you. And my research includes going to actual people who are actually expert. They're not going to make the video. I'm going to make the video. But I love all that. And I guess I'm going back to my social media system. You, I've seen you have to, They're great fun. You, you have to love it. You have to love the whole lifestyle because otherwise you will burn out and go, why am I making these stupid videos? Today, only 37 people liked my video, which, by the way, happens like every fifth video. And I, I have friends who do very similar things. They're graphic artists, they're whatever, and they basically say, like, only nine people liked my thing today. Now, you have to have done the thing because you wanted to. Do. You yep. can't live day to day with the world either paying attention or not paying attention because, wow, it only takes the Wagner group mutinying in Russia for all of your social media carefully planned for storming heaven to just vanish because no one is paying any attention. <laughs> How dare they try to start a world war? <laughs> um, did that influence your work, your, your military experience? Like what impact did you kind of find that was having on your fiction? Uh, what my, my real world military experience? Yeah. Yeah. That's okay to ask. Uh, I, I think I think the biggest impact is I think I can say this. I got to experience real world people of power exercising that power and what that looks and feels like. And I think I write it well, but I will say that my perception of how people of power behave and interact is starkly different from George Armarth. Because I believe that certain behaviors, with the amazing exception of Russian leaders, certain behaviors just lead to you not being a leader anymore. Uh, uh, backstabbing your own clients, you know, like I'm not saying any of these are nice people, but there are just certain things that cause you to either never get there in the first place or not last very long. So that's useful. It's banal to say that war is chaotic and terrible, but my experience of war is that it's chaotic and terrible. I mean, I learned a lot. I, I, I learned a lot about how leadership works and all of that, but that's not really immediately germane. It, it, they are things I like writing about. I'm always flattered when somebody says such and such a book was like a leadership manual because, you know, I, I have some direct experience of leading and I also saw some amazing and somewhat heroic leaders. And uh, that's not just military professionals. I've seen literally heroic African village leaders whose leadership was keeping their people alive in the middle of somebody else's idiot conflict. I try and bring all of that. But I was just saying this to my wife the other day. It's amazing to me how about seven months of my life has shaped all my writing, whereas most of the rest of my military experience, I mean, it may have some vague effect, but it doesn't really affect every day. And that was time spent in Africa, in Central Africa in the, in the 90s. Uh, I really loved Africa and I really loved Africans, but it was a particularly nasty time and I learned a, a lot of things I really didn't want to know. And That's it's fair. one of the reasons I don't really write Grimdark is that I, I sometimes feel like Grimdark is a terrible lie. Like, no, I it's agree. Like, it, it's like Jack Nicholson says, you can't handle the truth. Like It's not as dark as real life. That's that's my struggle yes. with it. Because um, I don't... I don't mind dark fiction, and oh my, I don't know if we can keep this. Grim dark people will be upset now, but but the, I, I have encountered this attitude in grim dark from a, a few fans that they kind of feel like their fiction is like the most realistic and the most gritty, and I always read it and think, but like it's fun, like it's I, I love Warhammer forty k and all that universe, but it's not realistic and it's not as gritty as, as the actual world that we live in, which is so bleak. Various semi genocides in Africa 
got me out of the grim dark mood. I'd ra- rather write about hero heroism and hope yeah. and survival and whatever, just because like that's what I want to read. And I'm going to go back to yeah. what I said at the beginning, which is like I've never write a book you don't want to read. Uh, and I too, by the way, I used to be a big 40k player, and I don't mind it as long as it's done with humor. 40k yes. used to have more humor. It used than to be. It, has it used to be funny. <laughs> um, sometimes sometimes and there's lots of grimdark i like i don't i'm not here to offend the grimdark community but sometimes i just roll my eyes and go like oh you could just go hang out with homeless people in downtown dorado and see a grimmer world than this like uh (laughs) meet up with some refugees like talk to syrian refugees and here's my grimdark i'm gonna write a medieval european themed book about refugees fleeing oppression nobody's gonna own a sword nobody is ever gonna have any agency they're just going to be driven from from serfdom to slavery, and in the end, they all die of the plague. There, I think that's my book. I think this is what I loved about Christopher Buhlman's book. I don't know if you've read Black Tongue Thief, but I it, love it is, Black Tongue Thief. It is yes. properly dark, and not just because it has some grotty taverns in it. Like it's, no, I, <laughs> it's very, no, no. very he, bleak. His asides are fabulously dark, and uh, yeah. yeah, and I just. I got, I, am I allowed to say this? I just got to read The Daughter's War, which is his next book. Ooh, I'm very um, jealous. And, and yeah, and it, it, you should be jealous. It's okay. <laughs> so what, what do you think when you read fantasy fiction? I don't know if I can ask this, but what do you think is like the most common mistake that writers make when they're writing about combat? Sonia, you're just asking me to piss off 50 writers. Like <laughs> <laughs> We can cut it if you want. <laughs> you, can, you can just pretend you're offending me. Because I have never stabbed somebody, but that is all over so the place in my book. Here's the commonest mistake. The commonest combat error that just causes me to roll my eyes and and whatever. Uh, also, let me just say, there are great combat scenes written by people who have never touched a sword. And um, uh, the historical fiction writer Patrick O'Brien wrote some of the best fight scenes of all time. And I don't think he'd ever been in a fight. So I don't think you have to be like new old martial artist to write a good fight scene. And uh, by the way, there's a whole way of writing fight scenes, which I very much admire when it's done well, which is often to say, and then I was standing there with a broken sword in one hand and an empty pistol in the other. I actually had an SAS officer once write me a note saying, I love your books, but I'll bet you know as well as I do that you can't remember dick about a fight after you've been in it. And and I was like, well, that's absolutely true. And he's like, but you never write that way. And I mean, it's absolutely true. So the whole in the black thing, that that is real. And it's a good way of writing. And you don't need to know anything. Uh, that being said, the thing I hate most is when the protagonist, it, it's a two-part. One is that the protagonist has to be beaten within an inch of his life before he can get up off the floor and win the fight. Uh, uh, it's a mostly an English thing. And I think it's about like ideas of masculinity. You have to like prove your masculine by taking a whole bunch of punches. Whereas real fights to the death between skilled people, there's a lot of staring. And then there's like four seconds of exchange and someone is dead. That That's my impression of the more likely outcome. And so being particular, when the hero in a Viking Age book with a shield is knocked down. And then while his opponent raises the sword over his head in what we call tempo in the fighting world, he somehow gets to his feet with his shield and blocks the blow. Now he's just dead. He was knocked down (laughs) with a shield. If he lands on top of the shield, he's absolutely dead. If he lands under the shield, maybe he can sort of skitter around like a crab defending himself. But getting back- Maybe he's very fast at rolling. (laughs) 
I don't I don't want to bore you with fencing terminology, but there is this thing called tempo or time. Uh, and fighters use a tempo to describe how long a, any single action in a fight takes. Mm. And the the tempo of rolling to your feet with a shield on one arm is a lot longer than the tempo of stabbing somebody through the head. It's just one of those like, no, no, your 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 guy got knocked down and now now he's dead. And then once in a while, I read a fight scene that I just love, and it oh, one of them. Uh, I think it was a couple of years ago is somebody got knocked down and then spends the rest of the battle down cowering under his shield mm-hmm. and hoping nobody will step on him or stab him. And I'm like, oh, I love this. And again, you didn't have to be a martial artist to write that scene, but it was really visceral because mm-hmm. the character realized he was basically just waiting to die because he couldn't get up. And I thought that was awesome and built tension. And anyway, it's um, different. Yeah. Scott over to you. I think I'm out of questions, but it, I've learned a well, ton. <laughs> I have to go get my car. I have to go get my car in like five to eight minutes. So. Oh right. Okay. No worries. Um, yeah, I, I have some questions about how you write and how you think about historical in particular. But I can we can. Chat no, I can. I can that. do That's that. No I can do that really fast. I'm really sorry. I'm on a. I shouldn't be on a time schedule. But I, the car. No, is, you're fine. You're We're totally taking fine. ages. <laughs> um, I usually annoy people at fantasy cons by saying I find writing historical novels and fantasy novels to be the same because in both my essential job is world building. I mean, I'm taking for granted character and plot and I realize I shouldn't because some people aren't so into those things, but you have to build a world, whether you can build that world from very careful research or whether you're building it entirely in your head, the writing part is world building and um, I do research even when I'm writing fantasy, usually just to get ideas and, and sometimes big ideas like what what are gods going to be like? You know, like, OK, let's look at some Hittite gods. And by the way, can I just say one thing the world has in common is some really pedantic, boring gods, pedestrian. Like uh, I, I keep lo- fantasy gods are way more interesting. <laughs> the, the Hittite pantheon, the Sumerian pantheon, the Veda Indian pantheon. They're like, oh, another thunder god. Is this the best we can do when we're in the mood to get like the big male god? Apparently so. I like to do research, so I research everything. But my point remains to me valid. I'm world building and I need to either sell you the reader on your immersion into 5th century BC Greece or into my completely made up fantasy world. But either way, I have to sell you on that immersion and that is the skill that makes to me, in my humble opinion, writing both fantasy and historical fiction very similar. After that, it's story, character, plot, but those are constants across a lot of genres. It's it's that immersive quality of world building that I feel is very similar. And so I'm always very surprised when people, even fans, say, oh, I only read fantasy. Oh, I only read historical fiction. And then I'll, I'll change sides and say, I, I really loathe ancient Rome. Like, I just can't stand them. They created everything I think is wrong in our culture today. They were a giant slave state that built good roads. Good job. They built worse roads than the Greeks, but nobody talks about the quality of Greek roads. Um, (laughs) A a Roman amphitheater is an amazing thing, but it's a Greek amphitheater built by slaves. So it's not as good as a Greek amphitheater that was built by masons. You know, like there's this whole Roman thing. So I don't read Roman historical fiction. There it is. I just don't read it. Once in a while, I'll write, read Simon Atkins' attorney because I love his stuff. But 
Yeah. So I understand when people say, oh, I just don't need to read another How England Conquered the World historical novel. And I'm like, yeah, I can. I, I hear that. Aside from that, if somebody like Ben Kane is good at world building and good at character and good at plot, I feel that his historical novels are just as worthy as the best fantasy novels. I like that a lot. That's actually, that makes a ton of sense to me that you treat the world building the exact same. Because it, I mean, especially if you go far back enough in history, it is a different world, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. it really is. I mean, I, in fact, I would tell you that because I'm really, really pedantic on these subjects, that the, my dichotomy of writing historical fiction is everything in the past is completely different. Everything in the past, people in the past are the same. And uh, that that's very dichotomous because I can tell you how medieval people were in fact sharply intellectually different from us. But if you take that too far, you render them so alien that nobody wants to read your book. And that goes back to the point we were making earlier on about it is to some extent your job to satisfy your audience or else you won't sell books. So I could write a medieval novel in which everyone was painstakingly accurate, especially about religious taboos. Uh, I think it would be more alien than the aliens I've just written in my science fiction novel. So what people sort of want to know is how are medieval French people kind of like me? Kind of different, but kind of like me. How are medieval Indian people kind of like me, but kind of different? I, I, I mean, I'm... And being banal, but that is sort of the trick of historical fiction. But isn't that sort of the trick of fantasy? Are medieval Indians more or less alien than elves? That depends. Are they publishing elves? <laughs> yeah. uh, not the elves in the basement. And anyway, I wanted to specify, Sunny, that when they call an elf up from the basement and when they bring in a contractor who speaks elvish, it turns out that the elves don't handle that particular part of the publishing industry. That's gnomes. They're down the hall in a different basement. Okay. That would explain a lot about this royal. And they only work on Tuesdays in the summer. And that's why your agent can't get a straight answer. (laughs) Very like, right. Thank you so much for for coming and talking to us. You are getting dinged. I think we better go let you get your car. Um, Uh, uh, Actually, my wife has saved me and bought me five more minutes. So if you want to ask one more question, I will answer one more. I I hope I'm not boring the crap out of you guys. You're really not. You're great. No, this is fantastic. (laughs) Really fantastic. And honestly, in the course of the conversation, I think we've hit everything that I wanted to ask. I think I'm good, but this has been wonderful. And I'm sure in the, in the coming days, I will have more questions that'll pop up like, oh, I should ask that. Well, I'm going to take a moment at the end of your podcast to oh, just yes. plug yourself. Yeah, yes. totally. So, um, I should have invited that. Sorry. <laughs> Storming Heaven is my latest. Oh, no, see, this is how I sell 50 copies, which justifies the Right. Um, Storming Heaven is the second book of my Bronze Age or Age of Bronze uh, series, which started with Against All Gods. And if you want the premise, even though the book has nothing to do with the Iliad, the premise is uh, if you've read the Iliad, you know that people are treated like crap by the gods. And in the end, no one has any agency, including Achilles. Everybody is just a tool. So my premise is what happens in an alternate Bronze Age if the humans finally decide they've had enough and they're going for the gods? And that is a premise that continues to fascinate me because honestly, I love the Iliad and I love all that. And the early books of the Bible, they fascinate me, not always in a good way. But yeah, what if what if humans decided to take down the gods because they were just too messy? So uh, Against All Gods pretty much says it all. And then Storming Heaven is the second book. If you like a big boss fight, I think I have a boss fight that will satisfy people and also some accurate sort of bronze age lifestyles and i feel some very interesting characters i'm really focused at the moment on a woman named mary totten there was a real life mary totten who was one of a 
Pharaoh of Egypt's uh, daughters. In my book, she's nothing like that. She's basically come up the hard way and then made herself Pharaoh of an alternate Egypt. And now she faces having basically once upon a time been a sex worker, being a battlefield leader, and how she deals with that, I find fascinating. So Storming Heaven, uh, out July 20th. And then I also want to push, because of my social media, I want to push hashtag writing fighting, which is my attempt to help authors write better fight scenes. I do it on Twitter from time to time. I can't, like my ideal is to do it every Thursday at 7.30 in the morning Eastern Standard Time, but I miss some. Uh, I have 200 episodes on YouTube. And um, if you want to know how to use a spear or a pole axe or a two-handed sword or a one-handed sword or an axe or a mace or your bare hands or what it's like to wear armor or not wear armor when other people are wearing armor, I've covered all those subjects and uh, Greek armor. We're, we're aiming for Hittites next. I think the disarming videos are probably my favorite, the ones that I've seen. <laughs> yeah, very I, good videos. Highly recommend writing fighting. They were really, the disarm videos were really fun and uh, Elizabeth Beattie really enjoyed throwing me on the ground over and over again <laughs> to make one of them. Thank you so much, man. It was, it was really excellent to have you on. You've been listening to the Publishing Radio Podcast with Sunny Dean and Scott Drakeford. Tune in next time for more in-depth discussion on everything publishing industry. See you later.